following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Well, this morning we are uh, welcoming Dr. Snowberger. He is an associate professor of systematic theology at uh, Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, he is, also was a student there back in the day. He has uh, two sons, one of which we uh, well know, Brother John, who serves as our deacon here. Also, he has a son, David, who is uh, studying at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. We're also joined this morning by his wife, Heather, who's probably somewhere with that little grandbaby, enjoying that time. But we all welcome you, Dr. Snowberger. Please come give us the word. Thank you, Jansen. You should have a handout. If you don't have a handout, I believe Dan has them in the back, but he seems to be pretty good about distributing those. I normally don't say this because uh, people get terrified when I say it, but this is something of a, of a little bit of a summary here of some dissert, my dissertation work from about 12 years ago, uh, but I think you've got a, you, your, your reputation for an erudite church uh, precedes you, so I, I feel comfortable letting you know that, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll make sure that it's not uh, too, too aggressive here. But you can see here the topic uh, for the morning is the relationship between justification and sanctification. And some questions that we're going to be looking at, you can see here, is okay, what is the relationship between the two of them? And there's a lot of, a lot of surprising amount of debate on that. Secondly, is sanctification something that's optional? Or is it something that's necessary? Or is there some other word that we'd want to put in between uh, that's uh, somehow more palatable for us? How do I become more holy? What, 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 is, what is the process? What is the, the secret? What is the procedure uh, for becoming more holy? What formula should I use to improve my chances to become like Jesus Christ? That's the goal, to become like Jesus Christ. So what does that look like? How do I go about doing that? What are Christ's role and the Spirit's role in sanctification? And then what's my role? Do I have a role? Or is this something that's done entirely uh, by God himself and I simply observe? And then what should we think about Christians who are not becoming like Jesus Christ? So th those are some questions, some governing questions that we're going to try and answer, a few others along the way as well. Uh, but that's uh, where we're headed here. I want to start here with some key definitions. Uh, so we understand what sanctification is and what justification are, and then we'll delve into the relationship between them and how it is that uh, uh, they uh, connect with one another in causing us to become more like Jesus Christ. So sanctification will be our first term here. Etymologically, the term simply means to be set apart, to set apart uh, practically uh, by becoming like Jesus Christ, unlike those who are not believers, who are not becoming like Jesus Christ, who are not set aside for his use, uh, we are becoming like him. There are three senses here of this term that's used, that are used in the scriptures, um, and we have to make sure from context that we know we're looking at the right one. First is initial sanctification, uh, or if I can say it, sanctification in the past tense. I've got some text here uh, that says, you have been sanctified, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11 says. 
And by initial sanctification, the believer has been rescued from his slavery to sin, made capable of walking in newness of life. So I've been set aside to Jesus Christ by being made new. I am not what I once was. I'm not yet what I will be, but I am not what I once was. So we are uh, able now to walk in newness of life. Uh, We have become new creatures in Christ. We've become recipients of the mind of Christ. Peter actually uses the phrase, you have become partakers of the divine nature, which almost seems too much. But we are rightly described here as saints. We have been set aside, and something experimental has happened. Something has happened to me, that's why I link it here with regeneration. It's, it's more than justification, where we're declared righteous. This is actually, we are actually starting to become holy, and that seed of righteousness has been implanted, enabling us to please God. You know, we, we, we talk about the term uh, total depravity. You're, I'm sure, familiar with that term here. It's the uh, mark of those who have not Christ at all. Uh, they, they are totally depraved, incapable of making any overture to God, incapable of pleasing God in any sense, incapable of exercising faith. But the believer is not totally depraved in that sense. We have been rendered capable of pleasing God. We have been rendered capable of exercising faith. And so even though, we're, as we're going to see here, sin still does you know, cling and grasp at us, uh, we are not incapable of pleasing God because of the remnants of sin that remain uh, to uh, distract us. Which is why, then, we have the second here, progressive sanctification, or if I can put it this way, sanctification in the present tense. This is what we typically think of uh, when we think of sanctification. It's the ongoing process. And as you look through the New Testament, most of our references uh, to sanctification are in this category. Okay? We are becoming like Jesus Christ. So while we are constitutionally new, I say, our flesh or our tendency to sin still remains. We're not what we once were, but we are not what we will be, but we are becoming. It's not as though we are simply static here, have been recategorized, but actually we have become new and we are flexing the muscles of our new man, right, in order to become like Jesus Christ. So we have been awakened uh, by Christ and now we are uh, cultivating that new life in Christ and doing royal battle against the deeds of darkness. A little bit more on that in a bit. And then there's a few references in the, uh, in the New Testament about final or entire sanctification. Uh, Ephesians 5 talks about us being as brides, being prepared for our, hus- uh, for the, our, our marriage to our Lord Christ in the last day. And it's in terms of being a bride uh, that is without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And so we anticipate this day. Uh, uh, Paul also uses the language in 1 Thessalonians, we will be entirely sanctified at the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So there is a day coming, it's sanctification in the future tense, when we are freed not only from the penalty of sin 
and not only from the power of sin, but actually from the very presence of sin, which is entirely scoured away and uh, done away with in our lives. So those are the three senses of sanctification. We'll be spending most of our time here uh, talking about progressive, but we don't want to lose sight of what happens in initial sanctification. It's not just a declaration that we are holy, but it is actually the impartation of a new nature that in, that makes us able to please Jesus Christ. Second term here, and perhaps we should have done them in reverse order here, is justification. Justification is the acceptance of a believer whereby God declares us righteous and treats us as such based wholly on the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Okay, And uh, so so what happens in justification, uh, we had nothing to contribute except our unrighteousness, and so there had to be this great exchange, right? where we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he took away the guilt that was ours uh, by nature. Okay? And because we have been credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, uh, God looks at us as though we are as holy and as righteous as Jesus Christ, even though, practically speaking, we haven't achieved that yet. Okay? And so we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to us so that we are no longer culpable uh, for uh, judgment. At the same time, we recognize there, there is something left undone. We have not yet become what we are going to be. So we are simply declared to be righteous. Uh, Martin Luther talks about this idea of being simultaneously uh, a, a sinner and, and, uh, and saint at the same time. And that's the, the place we find ourselves. You know, this, uh, this wretched man that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, who has been made, who has been declared righteous, and yet there is this ongoing struggle that continues uh, as we do battle with sin. Okay? So let's look then on the next page here as three, three basic models then for relating Christ's twofold work of justification and sanctification. So here we're moving to this question. How are they related? What is the connection between the two? Let's see if I can, can't say that, can see here uh, three basic models that are out there, and I'm going to sort of cluster in a lot of variations, uh, but cluster into three basic views. We'll start with the Roman Catholic view. Sanctification and justification are basically merged as a progressive experience. Okay, so we've tried to define earlier that justification is not an experience, but is a legal standing. But sanctification is an experience. So sanctification is an experience. Justification is a legal standing. So how do they connect with one another? They're, they're not the same thing. Well, the Roman Catholic tends to lump everything in the realm of experience. Uh, one begins one's faith journey with a preliminary justification by grace. It's a work of God that relieves in Roman Catholic theology, the problem of original sin. So it takes care of the sin with which we were born and the sins committed up till that point, and it makes a person capable of works of the Spirit. Okay, This is distinguished from works of the flesh, which can do nothing, but works of the Spirit then one is capable of doing. Once one persists in these works, he can earn in the final day 
a final justification based on good works. You see, see the model there. One is justified, and then one progresses towards a final justification by being good, by advancing in good works. Now, there's some Protestant expressions of this as, as well. I'm going to just uh, tick some of these off here just because you may have been exposed to some of them just to let you know. Uh, Norm Shepherd and Shepherdism has a sort of a quasi-Catholic feel to it, the Auburn Avenue theology. Federal Vision is one that's sort of on the radio these days. And then the new perspective on Paul uh, comes at this a little bit different angle, but ultimately I think comes to the same view here of justification and sanctification. In order to stay justified and to achieve that final justification, one has to persist in holiness or you could be initially justified and lose out, okay? And which is, of course, in Roman Catholicism, the hook that keeps people, right? You've got to, you've got to keep on uh, doing good things, doing good things in order that you might in the last day be finally approved by God. There is an opposite pole, uh, which is, I'm going to call the Keswick model, that W is silent, Keswick model, where great emphasis is placed on the legal or forensic aspects of salvation. Remember we said justification is legal, sanctification is experiential. Uh, what, what Roman Catholicism does is puts them both into the category of experience. Keswick does the opposite, puts them both in the category of legal. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone. Jesus does it all. In Keswick theology, sanctification works the exact same way. By faith alone, it is received by meditating on the gospel and reminding ourselves over and over of the work of Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, some of the language that is used, you, you get out of the way, you let go and let God, because God does it all, you don't participate. Okay, so it's just a legal thing. And so you can see here that's the sort of the opposite uh, pole uh, to Roman Catholicism. And so sanctification or growing in practical holiness is our giant thank you to Jesus for saving us. Okay, So in this model you can see here justification leads to, at least ideally, leads to uh, holiness of life because we're grateful to God for what he's done. But many who hold this view, as you see here, are quick to point out that sanctification, while important, logical, reasonable, is not necessary. Okay? So one can be justified and then never engage in good works and still achieve heaven. Okay? So sanctification is something that should happen, but might not. And so you can see here that I put optionally in the category here. Some of you are familiar with the name Zane Hodges, for instance. Uh, a figure who, who, who taught that one may flatline and even apostatize after one has been saved and still get into heaven because he said his prayer, okay, right? And uh, it's a fellow, you know, north of here who's pastors up in, in, in Midland uh, who, uh, who says it's kind of like getting on a plane. Uh, you get on a plane, they shut the doors, you've got your ticket, they're not going to let you off until you get to your destination. No matter how hard you try, they will make sure you get to your destination. So even if you decide, I don't want to go, you'll get there whether you want to or not. 
Okay, so justification and sanctification are not necessarily connected. One can be justified and never advance in holiness at all. As you can see here, I'm, I'm trying to uh, squeeze in the middle here. I don't want to make everything experiential, nor do I want to make everything forensic, but rather, in the reformational view, and as you can sort of catch the, from the way I'm talking here, what I think is the biblical view, justification and sanctification are two parallel results of the believer's union with Christ. Now, I call it the reformational view. I, I'm, I'm resisting calling it the reformed view because it's, just, it's not just a, you know, a Calvinist view or something of that nature. It's really something that was held by all of the reformers. It's, if I can put it here, the standard Protestant view. Okay, And so uh, the view here is that there are two separate works of Christ that are, that are accomplished on behalf of every believer. It's the double benefit of union with Christ. In fact, uh, it's got a Latin word, the duplex beneficium of union with Christ that was widely held by the reformers as the two results of of Christ's work. So when Christ saved us, he did two things. One, in the legal sphere, he exchanged his righteousness for our guilt, giving us the righteousness necessary to eternal life, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, which we could not accomplish on our own. Okay? So Philippians 3 talks about having a righteousness which is not our own. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's the only righteousness that is good enough great enough, grand enough, in order to satisfy the holy expectations of God. Okay, so we receive, in the legal sphere, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, giving us the necessary righteousness for life. But in the practical sphere, Christ also makes us, in the words of 2 Peter 1, partakers of the divine nature, having enabled us to keep escape the corruption that is in the world. Okay, so we uh, have, have become new in terms of the way our, 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 our very nature is, and we have escaped the power of sin and have been rendered capable of pleasing God. So one becomes holy in this model by making good use of his new nature, cultivating that new nature indwelt by the Holy Spirit to accomplish something that before was impossible. Okay, and so you're familiar with the song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save me from its guilt and power. Actually, you're, 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 that, that's the original words, uh, now it's, I, I think uh, in most hymnals it's uh, save from wrath and make me pure, the idea, the idea is the same. So it saves from wrath and makes me pure. So the guilt is removed in the legal sphere. And also then, the power of sin has been broken so that I can advance in holiness. And so you can see the diagram here is that our union with Christ results necessarily in two benefits, justification and regeneration. They are not causally related to each other, but they necessarily come at the same time. We get both things from Jesus Christ. But it's not as though justification causes our sanctification or sanctification causes our justification. That's the errors that you, see, you saw previously, right? Okay. Um, 
Instead, we've got two parallel benefits of union with Christ, both of which accrue to the believer and, and uh, unfold uh, alongside as, as two, 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 two rails of a, of a train, uh, train track, right? Okay? So let's, let's, let's evaluate the two models that we saw earlier, the Roman Catholic model and the Keswick model. <clears throat> I don't know how... Uh, how, how much uh, exposure you've, you've had to either of these models. I find in general in Protestant churches, particularly second-generation Protestant churches, uh, the Keswick model is probably more uh, commonly observed. Uh, but I want to make sure that uh, we, we address the original problem here, the Roman Catholic model, to which Keswick is an overreaction. Okay, what do they get right? Well, they get some things right, right? For the Roman Catholic, it's impossible for an unbeliever to please God on his own. God must act first in grace to start the salvation process, which is which is, becomes rather difficult when you're talking to Roman Catholic because they'll say, yeah, I believe salvation is by grace. Okay, justification is by grace. Initially, God has to move first in his grace to save me, but... Sanctification is not by grace alone. That's the critical word uh, that is missing. Justification starts with Christ, but I have to do something to complete it. Okay? Works of the law in Roman Catholicism cannot contribute to one's justification, but works of the Spirit can. Okay? So again, they will say, no, it's not because of, of works that I get into heaven. Well, yeah, not by works of the law, but works of the Spirit is the, is the language that would be used in Roman Catholic life. In, in, in Roman Catholicism, justification is connected with the believer's acquisition of righteousness. This, this can be a little tricky here. Uh, do I need to be perfect to get into heaven? And the answer is, actually, yeah. You do. You have to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ to get into heaven, which is why yours doesn't help, right? You have to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ to get into heaven, okay? So justification is integrally connected with our acquisition of righteousness, but the question is, how do we acquire it? In Roman Catholicism, justification does not involve righteousness imputed, but rather... A righteousness infused. Okay, so God gives us a little bit of righteousness, and we run with that. And if we are successful in cultivating that over the course of years, then we can accrue enough righteousness to merit our entry into heaven. Okay, and usually there's a second chance attached to it. So if you didn't quite get enough, uh, there can be candles lit for you. There can be indulgences bought for you so you can make that last hump Get, get past that last hump here and get your way into heaven. Roman Catholics are also correct in saying that the process of life transformation begins at justification, and it is a vital response. It, it, you do need to become holy. It's, it's something that's, that's necessary for believers to do. But what they get wrong is in saying that this process of life transportation is not only a vital response, but something necessary to stay saved, to stay justified, or to complete their justification. 
So they can never say with Romans 5.1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's never possible to say that because you might not make it. You might falter and lose your spot. Okay, so uh, as you can see the conclusion then, Roman Catholicism stresses the great importance of sanctification, integrates the doctrine with an overall theory of salvation, but does so by making justification something that is transformational, ongoing, immediate, earned, which devalues grace, diminishes Christ, and destroys the gospel. So we have to have another solution. So Keswick theology was a solution that came out of Wesleyanism. Uh, it was actually something of a, of a, yeah, something of a, of a, of a massaging of Wesleyanism. But let me see if I can't give you just a little bit of history. Hopefully, this doesn't bore you too much. But we'll go fast enough that uh, you'll have to sort of keep up. Wesleyanism taught that justification and sanctification began simultaneously with what Wesley called pardoning in order to participation. This actually sounds pretty good right now. Believers will advance in holiness with extreme difficulty until they receive sanctifying grace, which is a second work of grace. Okay, So sometimes you hear uh, of, of, of Protestant sects or, or groups, uh, denominations that practice a second work of grace. So you get saved, you try to advance in holiness, but you're very unsuccessful because it's really hard. Until you receive the second work of grace, then it becomes easier. At some time, point in their walk, usually just before death, Wesley said, believers will receive sanctifying grace, at which time one feels that it is not they, they that speak, but the spirit of their Father who speaketh in them, and whatsoever is done by their hands, the Father who is in them, he doeth the works. Okay, so you, after, after a lifetime of striving and failing, you achieve this, 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 this perfect sanctification in which you can finally relax because God will do it all for you. Okay? Now, in 19th century American revivalism, there was an evolution of this idea of Wesleyanism. Remember, and keep, keep in mind, Wesleyanism said that you usually strive and fail and strive and fail and strive and fail for most of your Christian life until you receive entire sanctification, usually right before death. There was this eagerness to get it more quickly so you don't have to strive and fail the whole of your life. Okay, And so what we find here is, is 19th century American revivalism, and particularly Charles Finney. Charles Finney uh, was a figure uh, who was an evangelist, untrained, uh, and, uh, and he uh, uh, would uh, go around. His circuit was, in, in those days, uh, the American frontier, which was western New York, western Pennsylvania, and then uh, much of Ohio. Okay? And he went around, and from all accounts, he was a very severe preacher, uh, scared people, and they, would, and they responded in droves, many of them uh, you know, the desperate begging for the salvation uh, that, was, that could be theirs. But then, after about 10 years, he decides to start revisiting the places that he had been and was just crushed to find that there was no evidence that he had ever been there. Okay? 
So all of these people who had converted had, had abandoned the faith. He was distressed by this, naturally, and he was about to quit. Uh, when a fellow by the name of Asa Mayan, who uh, started uh, Oberlin College, uh, still there, um, and uh, oh, this, this Asa Mayan said, well, you know, what, what you did wrong was that you preached the first work of grace, but not the second, Okay. So all of these people out there, they're, they're justified. But they're not living like it because they didn't receive the second work of grace. So you need to go around and preach a second work of grace. He does so and uh, revives his own confidence again. And, uh, and so what is born here is this two-step model of revivalism. Okay. New features then here is while Wesley anticipated receiving sanctification near the end of of the Christian experience, Mayan and Finney connected sanctifying grace with the beginning of the Christian experience. Okay, so you're justified. There's a period of time where you wait, where you strive and fail, but then there's a second work of grace whereby you can be vaulted into a place of sanctification. And so while Wesley viewed entire sanctification as more or less permanent thing that happens at the end of life, Finney expected it to come early but then come and go. Phoebe Palmer is a figure that uh, uh, looms pretty large in this. Uh, she discovers what she calls her altar theology, uh, derived specifically from Matthew 23, where uh, Jesus says the, the altar sanctifies the gift. Okay? And so she deduced from this that there was a possibility that one could lay one's all on the altar at a finite moment in time and be entirely sanctified. Okay? And so this, this idea of laying one's all on the altar starts to emerge. It starts to filter into a number of psalms, right? Okay? You're all on the altar of, sancti- of, of sacrifice laid. And so... so, and so of course, there is no altar in the Christian church. You know, the table here, that's the communion table. It has nothing to do with an altar, okay? Uh, so it's not as, the, I used to think that when I was growing up, is you're all on the altar. I had to come up and put something here on the table. But that, that, that's not the idea. Uh, she said there is no altar in the Christian church, and so therefore, what is the altar? Well, it's the people of God. The temple of God is the people of God. And so what one does is comes forward to the front of the church and announces to the church that one has been consecrated. And this is the event, the consecrating event, that brings about this second work of grace. Okay, Of course, uh, there's a realization that this is something that does not persist. I mean, we all know that even though we might have moments of triumph in our Christian life, uh, there, there's, there's, it's not a, it's not a, you know, we're living on, on the higher plane there. Uh, we have, we have, it comes and goes. And so, uh, what was born here then was the idea that, uh, uh, what, what needed to be done in churches is to have revival meetings, usually twice a year, the spring meetings and the fall meetings, in order to be refilled. Okay, so you'd receive the filling of the Spirit every six months because, 
and I'm and, I, and I'll, I'll cite uh, the, uh, the the who, the a fellow by the name uh, who who is known as the uh, as the uh, the uh, theologian of Keswick theology. He talked about the leaking of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. So over the course of six months, the Spirit would leak out of you, and so you would have to have a revival meeting so that you could have a filling of the Spirit and get back to that state of perfection. Okay. So let's uh, uh, let's uh, let's uh, let's uh, let's uh, um, uh, yeah. There's a diagram there. Diagram pretty much taken out of a book by Charles Ryrie, uh, which we tend to have fond thoughts of because of his his uh, work on dispensationalism. But he bought in thoroughly to this idea of Keswick theology. Okay, and you can see the diagram that he has in his very book. That one gets saved and one flatlines. Okay? There is no advance in holiness. Any advances are is with great difficulty and it's short-lived. But then when you have this crisis of dedication or consecration, then you start advancing in holiness. Okay? I also have here uh, Tullian Tavigian a few week, a few years ago put out a book. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Same idea here, uh, and uh, from a from a reform perspective here, and his idea is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything in justification and sanctification. Jesus does everything; you do nothing. You don't participate in your own sanctification. Jesus does it all, which sounds good, but is frankly wrong. So, an analysis here. It does this this, this this Keswick model does take seriously the doctrine of total depravity. They're emphatic that our holiness does not contribute to our salvation, our status before God. And, and those who hold to this view are deeply concerned with personal holiness. Right? Even those who would say it's not necessary for one's salvation would say still say this is this is a good idea. It's something one ought to pursue. However, these, off, these models offer no necessary connection between justification and sanctification and undercut the very holiness they're trying to promote. Practically, this, what, what, what this, how this manifests here is to elevate the need for justification to an extreme and shrug off the need for sanctification. I find this is particularly in, in modern hymnody. Uh, we, we, we are in sort of a gospel-centered sort of world right now in terms of our evangelicalism. But take a look at the hymnody of, of modern hymnody of, of evangelicalism, and you find that the emphasis is almost entirely on justification. The gospel is justification. And what is lost here is that the gospel is also regeneration and sanctification. It's all part of the mix, Okay. And the scriptures play, place em, enormous import on personal holiness, what we're going to look at this morning in our main, in our main uh, worship service. Okay, so faith without works is dead. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And most stunning of all, James says that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, the idea, the idea here is a, a, a startling statement here in the book of James, right? What does he mean by that we're justified by our works? No, but his point is that justification is always accompanied by regeneration and the faith that is 
the, the grace that is alone is never alone in its product. Okay? So the works don't save us, but they are a necessary uh, outworking of the fact that we have been united with Christ. And so second, and I've sort of said this already here, uh, second, two-step models of sanctification minimize the enormous power of regeneration and gut sanctification of the considerable capacity for holiness that it offers. You know, we, when, once we were saved, were given a capacity. We, we have the mind of Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. We are the spirit man. We have, we have become new creatures in Christ. And as a result, God expects us to advance in holiness and gives us great energy and power to do so. Okay? It's something that we have resident within our new natures. And we can advance in holiness. And so we find that there is all kinds of transformation that is expected and participation in that. Okay? We, the verbs that we're going to see here in, in, in the verbs, uh, in the uh, verses coming up are extremely strong. We need to, we need to use all effort. We need to put to death. We need to crucify these, 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 these harsh verbs of what we are supposed to do with our sin. We participate in our sanctification. We don't simply back off and let God do everything. Okay? We participate. So in conclusion here, if Romanism errs by merging justification and sanctification together such that the believer must be sanctified to earn his, his justification, Keswick does the opposite. It gives us a model that so divorces sanctification from justification that it guts regeneration of all of its force and effectively renders sanctification optional, which, is not a po which, which should not occur. So we said here that the reformers suggest here that our salvation be described, as we said, as a double benefit of union with Christ. There is one source, Jesus Christ, the fountain from which all the benefits of salvation flow, and all of these benefits may be classed into two categories, Christian standing and Christian experience. So there's the diagram again. And so the two tracks of redemptive benefit do not stand in hopeful relationship or causal relationship, but as a necessary and parallel relationship. Both of them come at the same time. So if one is truly in Christ, once for all, a perfect new standing with Christ that is the basis of God's assessment of the believer as truly righteous or justified, he also receives with that standing a, 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 new, a new nature, which has been equipped by God to advance in personal holiness and Christ-likeness. And there's the song that I mentioned earlier, the double cure of union with Christ. Don't have time really to develop the history of this, uh, Luther uh, was, was perhaps one of the early ones to, to really grasp the relationship here. He was, uh, you know, sitting in his, uh, in his monastic cell and beating himself because he was worried about the righteousness of God that was coming. Because he thought of the righteousness of God as this perfect standard that he couldn't live up to. And so he would beat himself all the more to, to earn him points with uh, with uh, with God in the last day, and of course the uh, the great moment for him is it, 
it dawns on him that Romans 1, 16 and 17, that says that the righteousness of God from God is coming, that it was not coming to judge him, but it was coming as a gift. Okay? There is a righteousness of Jesus Christ that is offered as a solution to his problem that he could not on his own so, uh, uh, effect. And then uh, there's a little bit more to say here, but let me just go through a couple of key passages here that sort of connect all of these together. So on page 6, the practical face of sanctification. There's initial sanctification, or what I call definitive sanctification. It's more than just a position. That's why I don't like using that word. I know it's popular, uh, but I think it's, it, it actually goes to the very definition of who we are. Um, and so we have set aside the old man, breaking sin's power. There's a new nature that I put on, energized by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And this results then in progressive sanctification, uh, whereby I get rid of, once for, uh, one at a time, uh, the remnants of sin that remain in me. Some key passages here. Romans 6, we died to sin. Our old self was crucified. And we were baptized into Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. And then follows a series of four verses which tells us, and because that is true, advance in holiness. And this whole list of things that we're supposed to do in order uh, to advance in holiness. Colossians 1, you died. You laid aside the old self. You put on the new self. Therefore, put away lying. Put away anger. Put on forgiveness. And, and it's, there's, in this case, there's 13 verses of things you need to put on and put off in terms of your personal behavior, your ethics. Same thing in Ephesians 4. You took off the old self. You have been renewed and put on the new self. And then there's eight verses. This is what you need to do now. Second Peter 1. You escape the corruption that is in the world by becoming a partaker of the divine reach, uh, nature. And so therefore, using all effort, giving all, you know, as much energy as you can, add to your faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, and so on and so forth, these virtues that are listed there. So sanctification is a vitally important and absolutely necessary a part of the Christian life. It's as much as important to the Christian as being white is necessary of a white wall. Okay, If you are a saint, you must be saintly. When you came to Christ, you received a perfect new standing, and you became a fledgling new creature. And the newfound ability to please God with your new nature, while imperfect, you cannot contribute to your salvation still always accompanies your new standing. This reality contains not only a great promise, but a great warning. If you have been united with Christ by justification, he has also given to you a new nature, everything necessary for life and godliness, everything you need to please him. And that's, that, that's a bracing thought as you stumble your way through your Christian life, right? But there's also a warning. If there's no evidence at all of a new nature, then this is a troubling pointer to the possibility that justification has not occurred either. Even though you may have gone through the motions, there was an insincerity there uh, that does not reflect then in a new walk. Okay? 
And so all of this comes together uh, to, uh, to give us, I think, a model of the relationship of justification and sanctification. I know I'm sort of at my, my limit of my time here, but uh, have any questions uh, that you might want to uh, follow up with? I'm going to go do a sermon uh, through a key passage on this one that's not mentioned here in Titus chapter 2 uh, this morning, so perhaps add, add a little bit of flesh to this. But any questions before we, uh, uh, before we uh, call this session uh, over? Okay, uh, we will see you in 13 minutes then uh, for, the, uh, for the worship service that starts at 1045. Thank you.